Chapter Fifteen of Kenilworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Kenilworth by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Fifteen. You loggerheaded and unpolished grooms, what? No attendance, no regard, no duty. Where is the foolish knave I sent before? Taming of the Shrew. There is no period at which men look worse in the eyes of each other, or feel more uncomfortable, than when the first dawn of daylight finds them watchers. Even a beauty of the first order, after the vigils of a ball are interrupted by the dawn, would do wisely to withdraw herself from the gaze of her fondest and most partial admirers. Such was the pale, inauspicious, and ungrateful light which began to beam upon those who kept watch all night in the hall at Sayas Court and which mingled its cold, pale, blue diffusion with the red, yellow, and smoky beams of expiring lamps and torches. The young gallant, whom we noticed in our last chapter, had left the room for a few minutes, to learn the cause of a knocking at the outward gate, and on his return was so struck with the forlorn and ghastly aspects of his companions of the watch, that he exclaimed, pity of my heart my masters how like owls you look methinks when the sun rises i shall see you flutter off with your eyes dazzled to stick yourselves into the next ivy-tod or ruined steeple hold thy peace thou gibing fool said blount hold thy peace is this a time for jeering when the manhood of england is perchance dying within a wall's breadth of thee there thou liest replied the gallant how lie exclaimed blount starting up lie and to me why so thou didst thou peevish fool answered the youth thou didst lie on that bench even now didst thou not but art thou not a hasty coxcomb to pick up a wry word so wrathfully nevertheless loving and honouring my lord as truly as thou or any one i do say that should heaven take him from us all England's manhood dies not with him. Ay, replied Blount, a good portion will survive with thee, doubtless. And a good portion with thyself, Blount, and with stout Markham here, and Tracy, and all of us. But I am he will best employ the talent heaven has given to us all. As how, I prithee, said Blount, tell us your mystery of multiplying. Why, sirs, answered the youth, ye are like goodly land which bears no crop because it is not quickened by manure but i have that rising spirit in me which will make my poor faculties labour to keep pace with it my ambition will keep my brain at work i warrant thee i pray to god it does not drive thee mad said blount for my part if we lose our noble lord i bid adieu to the court and to the camp both i have five hundred foul acres in norfolk and thither will i and change the court, Pontoof, for the country hobnail. Oh, base transmutation! exclaimed his antagonist. Thou hast already got the true rustic slouch. Thy shoulders stoop as if thine hands were at the stilts of the plough, and thou hast a kind of earthy smell about thee, instead of being perfumed with essence, as a gallant and courtier should. On my soul, thou hast stolen out to roll thyself on a haymow thy only excuse will be to swear by thy hilts that the farmer had a fair daughter i pray thee walter said another of the company 
Cease thy raillery, which suits neither time nor place, and tell us who was at the gate just now. Dr. Masters, physician to her grace in ordinary, sent by her special orders to inquire after the earl's health, answered Walter. Ha! Ah, what? exclaimed Tracy. That was no slight mark of favor. If the earl can but come through, he will match with Lester yet. Is Masters with my lord at present? Nay, replied Walter. He is halfway back to Greenwich by this time, and in high dungeon. Thou didst not refuse him admittance, exclaimed Tracy. Thou wert not surely so mad, ejaculated Blount. I refused him admittance as flatly, Blount, as you would refuse a penny to a blind beggar, as obstinately, Tracy, as thou didst ever deny access to a dun. Why in the fiend's name didst thou trust him to go to the gate? said Blount to Tracy. It suited his years better than mine, answered Tracy. But he has undone us all now thoroughly. My lord may live or die, he will never have a look of favour from her majesty again. Nor the means of making fortunes for his followers, said the young gallant, smiling contemptuously. There lies the sore point that will brook no handling. My good sirs, I sounded my lamentations over my lord somewhat less loudly than some of you, but when the point comes of doing him service, I will yield to none of you. Had this learned leech entered, thinkest thou not there had been such a coil betwixt him and Tressilian's mediciner, that not the sleeper only, but the very dead, might have awakened? I know what larm belongs to the discord of doctors." "'And who is to take the blame of opposing the Queen's orders?' said Tracy. "'For undeniably, Dr. Masters came with her grace's positive commands to cure the Earl.' "'I who have done the wrong will bear the blame,' said Walter. "'Thus, then, off fly the dreams of court favour thou hast nourished,' said Blount. "'And despite all thy boasted art and ambition, Devonshire will see thee shine a true younger brother, fit to sit low at the board, carve turn about with the chaplain. Look that the hounds be fed, and see the squire's girths drawn when he goes a-hunting. Not so, said the young man, colouring, not while Ireland and the Netherlands have wars, and not while the sea hath pathless waves. The rich west hath lands undreamed of, and Britain contains bold hearts to venture on the quest of them. Adieu for a space, my masters. I go to walk in the court, and look to the sentinels. The lad hath quicksilver in his veins, that is certain, said Blount, looking at Markham. He hath that both in brain and blood, said Markham, which may either make or mar him. But in closing the door against masters, he hath done a daring and loving piece of service, for Tressilian's fellow hath ever averred that to wake the earl were death, and masters would wake the seven sleepers themselves, if he thought they slept not by the regular ordinance of medicine. Morning was well advanced, when Tressilian, fatigued and overwatched, came down to the hall with the joyful intelligence that the earl had awakened of himself, that he found his internal complaints much mitigated, and spoke with a cheerfulness, and looked round with a vivacity which of themselves showed a material and favourable change had taken place. Tressilian at the same time commanded the attendance of one or two of his followers to report what had passed during the night, and to relieve the watchers in the earl's chamber. 
when the message of the queen was communicated to the earl of sussex he at first smiled at the repulse which the physician had received from his zealous young follower but instantly recollecting himself he commanded blount his master of the horse instantly to take boat and go down the river to the palace of greenwich taking young walter and tracy with him and make a suitable compliment expressing his grateful thanks to his sovereign and mentioning the cause why he had not been enabled to profit by the assistance of the wise and learned dr masters a plague on it said blount as he descended the stairs had he sent me with a cartel to leicester i think i should have done his errand indifferently well but to go to our gracious sovereign before whom all words must be lacquered over either with gilding or with sugar is such a confectionary matter as clean baffles my poor old english brain come with me tracy and come you too master walter Whittypate, that art the cause of our having all this ado let us see if thy neat brain that frames so many flashy fireworks can help out a plain fellow at need with some of thy shrewd devices never fear never fear exclaimed the youth it is i will help you through let me but fetch my cloak why thou hast it on thy shoulders said blount the lad is maze no no this is tracy's old mantle answered walter i go not with thee to court unless as a gentleman should why said blount thy braveries are like to dazzle the eyes of none but some poor groom or porter i know that said the youth but i am resolved i will have my own cloak ay and brush my doublet to boot ere i stir forth with you well well said blount here is a coil about a doublet and a cloak get thyself ready a god's name they were soon launched on the princely bosom of the broad thames upon which the sun now shone forth in all its splendour there are two things scarce matched in the universe said walter de blount the sun in heaven and the thames on the earth the one will light us to greenwich well enough said blount and the other would take us there a little faster if it were ebb-tide and this is all thou thinkest all thou carest all thou deemest the use of the king of elements and the king of rivers to guide three poor caitus as thyself and me and tracy upon an idle journey of courtly ceremony it is no errand of my seeking faith replied blount and i could excuse both the sun and the thames the trouble of carrying me where i have no great mind to go and where i expect but dogs wages for my trouble and by my honour he added looking out from the head of the boat it seems to me as if our message were a sort of labour in vain for see the queen's barge lies at the stairs as if her majesty were about to take water it was even so the royal barge manned with the queen's watermen richly attired in the regal liveries and having the banner of england displayed did indeed lie at the great stairs which ascended from the river and along with it two or three other boats for transporting such part of her retinue as were not in immediate attendance on the royal person the yeomen of the guard the tallest and most handsome men whom england could produce guarded with their halberds the passage from the palace gate to the river side and all seemed in readiness for the queen's coming forth although the day was yet so early by my faith this bodes us no good said blount it must be some 
perilous cause puts her grace in motion thus untimeously by my counsel we were best put back again and tell the earl what we have seen tell the earl what we have seen said walter why what have we seen but a boat and men with scarlet jerkins and halberds in their hands let us do his errand and tell him what the queen says in reply so saying he caused the boat to be pulled towards a landing-place at some distance from the principal one which it would not at that moment have been thought respectful to approach and jumped on shore followed though with reluctance by his cautious and timid companions as they approached the gate of the palace one of the sergeant porters told them they could not at present enter as her majesty was in the act of coming forth the gentleman used the name of the earl of sussex but it proved no charm to subdue the officer who alleged in reply that it was as much as his post was worth to disobey in the least tittle the commands which he had received nay i told you as much before said blount do i pray you my dear walter let us take boat and return not till i see the queen come forth returned the youth composedly thou art mad stark mad by the mass answered blount and now said walter art turned coward of the sudden i have seen thee face half a score of shag-headed irish kerns to thy own share of them and now thou wouldst blink and go back to shun the frown of a fair lady at this moment the gates opened and ushers began to issue forth in array preceded and flanked by the band of gentlemen pensioners after this amid a crowd of lords and ladies yet so disposed around her that she could see and be seen on all sides came elizabeth herself then in the prime of womanhood and in the full glow of what in a sovereign was called beauty and who would in the lowest rank of life have been truly judged a noble figure joined to a striking and commanding physiognomy she leant on the arm of lord hunston whose relation to her by her mother's side often procured him such distinguished marks of elizabeth's intimacy the young cavalier we have so often mentioned had probably never yet approached so near the person of his sovereign and he pressed forward as far as the line of warders permitted in order to avail himself of the present opportunity his companion on the contrary cursing his imprudence kept pulling him backwards till walter shook him off impatiently and letting his rich cloak drop carelessly from one shoulder a natural action which served however to display to the best advantage his well-proportioned person unbonneting at the same time he fixed his eager gaze on the queen's approach with a mixture of respectful curiosity and modest yet ardent admiration which suited so well with his fine features that the warders struck with his rich attire and noble countenance suffered him to approach the ground over which the queen was to pass somewhat closer than was permitted to ordinary spectators thus the adventurous youth stood full in elizabeth's eye an eye never indifferent to the admiration which she deservedly excited among her subjects or to the fair proportions of external form which chanced to distinguish any of her courtiers accordingly she fixed her keen glance on the youth as she approached the place where he stood with a look in which surprise at his boldness seemed to be unmingled with resentment while a trifling accident happened which attracted her attention 
towards him yet more strongly the night had been rainy and just where the young gentleman stood a small quantity of mud interrupted the queen's passage as she hesitated to pass on the gallant throwing his cloak from his shoulders laid it on the miry spot so as to ensure her stepping over it dry shod elizabeth looked at the young man who accompanied this act of devoted courtesy with a profound reverence and a blush that overspread his whole countenance the queen was confused and blushed in her turn nodded her head hastily passed on and embarked in her barge without saying a word come along sir coxcomb said blount your gay cloak will need the brush to-day i want nay if you had meant to make a footcloth of your mantle better have kept tracy's old drab de bure which despises all colours this cloak said the youth taking it up and folding it shall never be brushed while in my possession and that will not be long if you learn not a little more economy we shall have you in cuerpo soon as the spaniard says their discourse was here interrupted by one of the band of pensioners i was sent said he after looking at them attentively to a gentleman who hath no cloak or a muddy one you sir i think addressing the young cavalier are the man you will please to follow me he is in attendance on me said blount on me the noble earl of sussex's master of horse i have nothing to say to that answered the messenger my orders are directly from her majesty and concern this gentleman only so saying he walked away followed by walter leaving the others behind blount's eyes almost starting from his head with the excess of his astonishment at length he gave vent to it in an exclamation who the good jeer would have thought this and shaking his head with a mysterious air he walked to his own boat embarked and returned to deptford the young cavalier was in the meanwhile guided to the waterside by the pensioner who showed him considerable respect a circumstance which to persons in his situation may be considered as an augury of no small consequence he ushered him into one of the wherries which lay ready to attend the queen's barge which was already proceeding up the river with the advantage of that flood-tide of which in the course of their descent blount had complained to his associates the two rowers used their oars with such expedition at the signal of the gentleman pensioner that they very soon brought their little skiff under the stern of the queen's boat where she sat beneath an awning attended by two or three ladies and the nobles of her household she looked more than once at the wherry in which the young adventurer was seated spoke to those around her and seemed to laugh at length one of the attendants by the queen's order apparently made a sign for the wherry to come alongside and the young man was desired to step from his own skiff into the queen's barge which he performed with graceful agility at the forepart of the boat and was brought aft to the queen's presence the wherry at the same time dropping into the rear the youth underwent the gaze of majesty not the less gracefully that his self-possession was mingled with embarrassment the muddied cloak still hung upon his arm and formed the natural topic with which the queen introduced the conversation you have this day spoiled a gay mantle in our behalf young man 
we thank you for your service, though the manner of offering it was unusual and something bold. In a sovereign's need, answered the youth, it is each liegeman's duty to be bold. God's pity, that was well said, my lord, said the queen, turning to a grave person who sat by her, and answered with a grave inclination of the head, and something of a mumbled assent. Well, young man, your gallantry shall not go unrewarded. Go to the wardrobe-keeper, and he shall have orders to supply the suit which you have cast away in our service. Thou shalt have a suit, and that of the newest cut, I promise thee, on the word of a princess. May it please your grace, said Walter, hesitating. It is not for so humble a servant of your majesty to measure out your bounties, but if it became me to choose— thou wouldst have gold i warrant me said the queen interrupting him fie young man i take shame to say that in our capital such and so various are the means of thriftless folly that to give gold to youth is giving fuel to fire and furnishing them with the means of self-destruction if i live and reign these means of unchristian excess shall be abridged yet thou mayest be poor she added or thy parents may be it shall be gold, if thou wilt, but thou shalt answer to me for the use on't. Walter waited patiently until the queen had done, and then modestly assured her that gold was still less in his wish than the raiment her majesty had before offered. How, boy, said the queen, neither gold nor garment? What is it thou wouldst have of me, then? Only permission, madam, if it is not asking too high an honour, Permission to wear the cloak which did you this trifling service. Permission to wear thine own cloak, thou silly boy, said the queen. It is no longer mine, said Walter. When your majesty's foot touched it, it became a fit mantle for a prince, but far too rich a one for its former owner. The queen again blushed and endeavoured to cover by laughing a slight degree of not unpleasing surprise and confusion. Heard you ever the like, my lords? The youth's head is turned with reading romances. I must know something of him, that I may send him safe to his friends. What art thou? A gentleman of the household of the Earl of Sussex, so please your grace, sent hither with his master of horse upon message to your majesty. In a moment the gracious expression which Elizabeth's face had hitherto maintained gave way to an expression of haughtiness and severity. "'My lord of Sussex,' she said, "'has taught us how to regard his messages by the value he places upon ours. "'We sent but this morning the physician in ordinary of our chamber, "'and that, at no usual time, "'understanding his lordship's illness to be more dangerous than we had before apprehended, "'there is at no court in Europe a man more skilled in this holy and most useful science then dr masters and he came from us to our subject nevertheless he found the gate of sayes court defended by men with culverins as if it had been on the borders of scotland not in the vicinity of our court and when he demanded admittance in our name it was stubbornly refused for this slight of a kindness which had but too much of condescension in it we will receive at present at least no excuse and some such we suppose to have been the purport of my lord of sussex's message this was uttered in a tone and with a gesture 
which made Lord Sussex's friends, who were within hearing, tremble. He to whom the speech was addressed, however, trembled not, but with great deference and humility, as soon as the Queen's passion gave him an opportunity, he replied, So please your most gracious majesty, I was charged with no apology from the Earl of Sussex. With what were you then charged, sir? said the Queen, with the impetuosity which, amid nobler qualities, strongly marked her character. Was it with a justification, or God's death, with a defiance? Madam, said the young man, my lord of Sussex knew the offence approached towards treason, and could think of nothing save of securing the offender, and placing him in your majesty's hands, and at your mercy. The noble earl was fast asleep when your most gracious message reached him, a potion having been administered to that purpose by his physician, and his lordship knew not of the ungracious repulse your majesty's royal and most comfortable message had received until after he awoke this morning. And which of his domestics, then, in the name of heaven, presumed to reject my message, without even admitting my own physician to the presence of him, whom I sent him to attend? said the queen, much surprised. The offender, madam, is before you, replied Walter, bowing very low. The full and sole blame is mine, and my lord has most justly sent me to abide the consequences of a fault of which he is as innocent as a sleeping man's dreams can be of a waking man's actions. What, was it thou, thou thyself, that repelled my messenger and my physician from Sayes court, said the queen? What could occasion such boldness in one who seems devoted, that is, whose exterior bearing shows devotion, to his sovereign? Madam, said the youth, who, notwithstanding an assumed appearance of severity, thought that he saw something in the queen's face that resembled not implacability. We say in our country that the physician is for the time the liege sovereign of his patient. Now my noble master was then under dominion of a liege, by whose advice he hath greatly profited, who had issued his commands that his patient should not that night be disturbed on the very peril of his life. Thy master hath trusted some false varlet of an empiric, said the queen. I know not, madam, but by the fact that he is now, this very morning, awakened, much refreshed, and strengthened, from the only sleep he hath had for many hours. The nobles looked at each other, but more with the purpose to see what each thought of this news, than to exchange any remarks on what had happened. The queen answered hastily, and without affecting to disguise her satisfaction. By my word, I am glad he is better, but thou wert overbold to deny the access of my doctor masters. Knowest thou not the holy writ saith, In the multitude of counsel there is safety? Ay, madam, said Walter, but I have heard learned men say that the safety spoken of is for the physicians, not for the patient. By my faith, child, Thou hast pushed me home, said the queen, laughing, for my Hebrew learning does not come quite at a call. How say you, my lord of Lincoln? Hath the lad given a just interpretation of the text? The word safety, most gracious madam, said the bishop of Lincoln, for so hath been translated, it may be somewhat hastily, the Hebrew word being, my lord, said the queen, interrupting him, we said we had forgotten our Hebrew, 
but for thee, young man, what is thy name and birth? Raleigh is my name, most gracious queen, the youngest son of a large but honourable family of Devonshire. Raleigh, said Elizabeth, after a moment's recollection, have we not heard of your service in Ireland? I have been so fortunate as to do some service there, madam, replied Raleigh, scarce, however, of consequence sufficient to reach your grace's ears. They hear farther than you think of, said the queen graciously, and have heard of a youth who defended a ford in Shannon against a whole band of wild Irish rebels, until the stream ran purple with their blood and his own. Some blood I may have lost, said the youth, looking down, but it was where my best is due, and that is in your majesty's service. The queen paused, and then said hastily, You are very young to have fought so well, and to speak so well, but you must not escape your penance for turning back masters. The poor man hath caught cold on the river, for our order reached him, when he was just returned from certain visits in London, and he held it matter of loyalty and conscience instantly to set forth again. So hark ye, Master Raleigh, see thou fail not to wear thy muddy cloak in token of penitence, till our pleasure be further known. And here, she added, giving him a jewel of gold, in the form of a chessman. I give thee this to wear at the collar. Raleigh, to whom nature had taught, intuitively as it were, those courtly arts which many scarce acquire from long experience, knelt, and as he took from her hand the jewel, kissed the fingers which gave it. He knew perhaps better than almost any of the courtiers who surrounded her how to mingle the devotion claimed by the queen with the gallantry due to her personal beauty, and in this his first attempt to unite them, he succeeded so well as at once to gratify Elizabeth's personal vanity and her love of power. Reader's Note Note 5, Chapter 15, Court Favour of Sir Walter Raleigh The gallant incident of the cloak is the traditional account of the celebrated statements rise at court. None of Elizabeth's courtiers knew better than he how to make his court to her personal vanity, or could more justly estimate the quantity of flattery which she could condescend to swallow. Being confined in the tower for some offence, and understanding the queen was about to pass to Greenwich in her barge, he insisted on approaching the window, that he might see, at whatever distance, the queen of his affections, the most beautiful object which the earth bore on its surface. The lieutenant of the tower, his own particular friend, threw himself between his prisoner and the window, while Sir Walter, apparently influenced by a fit of unrestrainable passion, swore he would not be debarred from seeing his light, his life, his goddess. A scuffle ensued, got up for effect's sake, in which the lieutenant and his captive grappled and struggled with fury, tore each other's hair, and at length drew daggers, and were only separated by force. The queen being informed of this scene, exhibited by her frantic adorer, it wrought, as was to be expected, much in favour of the captive paladin. There is little doubt that his quarrel with the lieutenant was entirely contrived for the purpose which it produced. End reader's note. His master, the Earl of Sussex, had the full advantage of the satisfaction which Raleigh had afforded Elizabeth on their first interview. 
"'My lords and ladies,' said the Queen, looking around to the retinue by whom she was attended, "'methinks, since we are upon the river, it were well to renounce our present purpose of going to the city, and surprise this poor Earl of Sussex with a visit. He is ill, and suffering doubtless under the fear of our displeasure, from which he hath been honestly cleared by the frank avowal of this malapert boy. What think ye? Were it not an act of charity to give him such consolation as the thanks of a queen, much bound to him for his loyal service, may perchance best minister? It may be readily supposed that none to whom the speech was addressed ventured to oppose its purport. "'Your grace,' said the Bishop of Lincoln, "'is the breath of our nostrils.' The men of war aver that the face of the sovereign was a whetstone to the soldier's sword, while the men of state were not less of opinion that the light of the queen's countenance was a lamp to the paths of her counsellors. And the ladies agreed, with one voice, that no noble in England so well deserved the regard of England's royal mistress as the Earl of Sussex. The Earl of Leicester's right, being reserved entire, so some of the more politic worded their assent, an exception to which Elizabeth paid no apparent attention. The barge had, therefore, orders to deposit its royal freight at Deptford, at the nearest and most convenient point of communication with Sayes Court, in order that the Queen might satisfy her royal and maternal solicitude by making personal inquiries after the health of the Earl of Sussex. Raleigh, whose acute spirit foresaw and anticipated important consequences from the most trifling events, hastened to ask the Queen's permission to go in the skiff, and announce the royal visit to his master, ingeniously suggesting that the joyful surprise might prove prejudicial to his health, since the richest and most generous cordials may sometimes be fatal to those who have been long in a languishing state. But whether the Queen deemed it too presumptuous in so young a courtier to interpose his opinion unasked, or whether she was moved by a recurrence of the feeling of jealousy which had been instilled into her by reports that the Earl kept armed men about his person, she desired Raleigh sharply to reserve his counsel till it was required of him, and repeated her former orders to be landed at Deptford, adding, we will ourselves see what sort of household my lord of Sussex keeps about him. Now the lord hath pity on us, said the young courtier to himself. Good hearts, the earl hath many a one round him, but good heads are scarce with us, and he himself is too ill to give direction, and Blount will be at his morning meal of Yarmouth herrings and ale, and Tracy will have his beastly black puddings and rhenish those thorough-paced Welshmen, Thomas Aprice and Evan Evans, will be at work on their leek porridge and toasted cheese, and she detests, they say, all coarse meats, evil smells, and strong wines. Could they but think of burning some rosemary in the great hall? But vogue la galere, all must now be trusted to chance. Luck hath done indifferent well for me this morning, for I trust I have spoiled a cloak and made a court fortune. May she do as much for my gallant patron. The royal barge soon stopped at Deptford, and amid the loud shouts of the populace, which her presence never failed to excite, the queen, with a canopy borne over her head, walked, accompanied by her retinue, towards Sayes Court, 
where the distant acclamations of the people gave the first notice of her arrival. Sussex, who was in the act of advising with Tressilian how he should make up the supposed breach in the Queen's favour, was infinitely surprised at learning her immediate approach. Not that the Queen's custom of visiting her more distinguished nobility, whether in health or sickness, could be unknown to him, but the suddenness of the communication left no time for those preparations with which he well knew Elizabeth loved to be greeted, and the rudeness and confusion of his military household, much increased by his late illness, rendered him altogether unprepared for her reception. Cursing internally the chance which thus brought her gracious visitation on him unaware, he hastened down with Tressilian, to whose eventful and interesting story he had just given an attentive ear. "'My worthy friend,' he said, "'such support as I can give your accusation of Varney, you have a right to expect, alike from justice and gratitude. Chance will presently show whether I can do aught with our sovereign, or whether in very deed my meddling in your affair may not rather prejudice than serve you.' Thus spoke Sussex, while hastily casting around him a loose robe of sables, and adjusting his person in the best manner he could to meet the eye of his sovereign. But no hurried attention bestowed on his apparel could remove the ghastly effects of long illness on a countenance which nature had marked with features rather strong than pleasing. Besides, he was low of stature, and though broad-shouldered, athletic, and fit for martial achievements, his presence in a peaceful hall was not such as ladies loved to look upon. A personal disadvantage, which was supposed to give Sussex, though esteemed and honoured by a sovereign, considerable disadvantage when compared with Leicester, who was alike remarkable for elegance of manners and for beauty of person. The Earl's utmost dispatch only enabled him to meet the Queen as she entered the great hall, and he at once perceived there was a cloud on her brow. Her jealous eye had noticed the martial array of armed gentlemen and retainers with which the mansion-house was filled, and her first words expressed her disapprobation. Is this a royal garrison, my lord of Sussex, that it holds so many pikes and calivers? Or have we by accident overshot Zaya's court, and landed at our Tower of London. Lord Sussex hastened to offer some apology. "'It needs not,' she said. "'My lord, we intend speedily to take up a certain quarrel between your lordship and another great lord of our household, and at the same time to reprehend this uncivilized and dangerous practice of surrounding yourselves with armed and even with ruffianly followers, as if, in the neighbourhood of our capital, nay, in the very verge of our royal residence, you were preparing to wage civil war with each other. We are glad to see you so well recovered, my lord, though without the assistance of the learned physician whom we sent to you. Urge no excuse. We know how that matter fell out, and we have corrected for it the wild slip, young Raleigh. By the way, my lord, we will speedily relieve your household of him, and take him into our own. Something there is about him which merits to be better nurtured than he is like to be amongst your very military followers. To this proposal Sussex, though scarce understanding how the Queen came to make it, could only bow and express his acquiescence. He then entreated her to remain till refreshment could be offered, but in this he could not prevail, 
and after a few compliments of a much colder and more commonplace character than might have been expected from a step so decidedly favourable as a personal visit the queen took her leave of sayes court having brought confusion thither along with her and leaving doubt and apprehension behind End chapter fifteen